Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we step outside of Charlotte, actually, as you'll find that we'll do a little bit more over the course of the next couple of quarters and, and hopefully years. We do a podcast interview with David Jones. David is a partner with Bull City Venture Partners up in the Durham Triangle area, and uh, David's been a, a a solid member of the Charlotte startup community from afar, and um, and a good friend. So we talked a little bit over the course of the last couple of months about what it really means to be a a, a venture founder or venture partner who is founder friendly and so we just wanted to I wanted to kind of dive into a little bit more of what that meant from the founder's perspective right so we dive through some of you know uh, David's history and um, um, great history uh, great background and then jump straight into what does it mean what does it mean to be founder friendly towards the founder and not so much in deal terms and you'll hear David and I talk about that today but helping the founder in their in their journey and navigating some of the 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 decisions that they need to make around the business and and how the business ultimately ends up impacting the the founder as well so David's super great and gracious um, guest on the podcast and look forward to hopefully having him on again at some point in the not too distant future uh, to, to continue some of the conversations we had today. But certainly hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Charlotte Angel Connection. David, welcome to the show. So glad to have you joining us today, man. I'm really excited about our conversation. We're going to have a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, William. I'm super excited about it as well. So, um, so David, you're, um, you're, you're up in the Triangle area. Um, you've been down here in Charlotte, and I know you've got a lot of good friends down here in the Charlotte market. But um, why don't you take a couple minutes and give us a little bit of background on who David Jones is um, and remind everybody who Bull City Venture Partners is and what y'all, what y'all are up to up there. You bet. You bet. Again, thanks again, William, for, for having me. Uh, David Jones, I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina. I grew up in a middle-class family. Dad was a nuclear engineer. Mom was a nurse. Took a little bit of a road less traveled after high school and went to the Naval Academy. Um, All my friends were going to UNC and State and places like that. But uh, after the Academy, I uh, was an aviator and flew a P-3 Orion. It's a big four-engine prop plane and did uh, some deployments over Bosnia, did a couple to Keflavik, Iceland, and, and one down to Panama and Puerto Rico. And then my last job in the Navy was teaching uh, ROTC at the University of Virginia. And there I was able to get a master's in management information systems, kind of a technical MBA, if you will. And then from there, got out, did uh, went to join Deloitte Consulting, the typical strategy consultant firm in, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. Got to work with some commercial clients, some government clients. I always tell people that, that consulting job was a good way to get to see the, the problems of lots of different businesses. And for me, you know, having been in the military, that was a good, a good learning atmosphere. Uh, then did a startup as a co-founder and CTO, still a small going concern 
more, a little bit more of a lifestyle business, and then went back to school full-time at UNC for my MBA. Uh, and there I met my business partner, Jason. He was starting the firm. He had started it a couple of years earlier, our first fund. I had joined him towards the tail end of that. Um, we had a fund under the name Southern Capital Ventures, where we have two funds. Uh, we had two part-time partners there, and one passed away, unfortunately, at an early age. The other uh, was much older and didn't want to do a new fund. So we changed the name to Bull City to kind of clean up the ownership. And so fast forward to today, we just closed our fourth fund um, in April of 2022 at $53 million. Um, and we focus on, on exclusively kind of on software and tech companies, you know, at the seed and series A stage. That's awesome. Congratulations on the on the recent close. That's a that's a good number for North Carolina. It really is. Thanks. We're excited. It was uh fundraising, I think, has gotten a lot tougher since then. I can't claim that we had that timing in mind, but I think it was good, good timing to close a, a new fund. Um what so up in the triangle area, what types of companies do you uh, do you typically like to invest in, right? Is there, is there a niche that y'all focus in on or is it size? Um, what's the strategy there? So yeah, William, we um, only do kind of software, internet, tech companies, pretty broad along that tech spectrum. Um, we have some themes that we like, DevOps, infrastructure, software. We do some e-commerce, vertical SaaS. Um, we always try to do it at the seed and series A stage. I know that those terms are, have been, have changed a lot, but seed usually meaning, you know, for me can, can mean pre-revenue. We're happy to do the pre-revenue stuff up to kind of the series A stage. Um, I would say, but the thing, while we have some of those themes that we like, we really chase the entrepreneurs and we're really a big believer that this is a people business and a relationship business. And, if you look across four funds, you're going to see a lot of, you know, maybe close to 70% of the deals tend to be some type of experienced entrepreneur. That, that doesn't mean um, they have built and sold something successfully always before. That that, that can be the case, but they, they've done something. They didn't just graduate from college and they're 22. So we would, we would have missed Mark Zuckerberg, you know, every time. Um, so uh, So, yeah, that's... And then from a geography perspective, we invest throughout the U.S., but I would say a super strong concentration or kind of where I think we have a competitive advantage is in what we call the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast. And that tends to be, you know, New York, Philly, D.C., obviously North Carolina, Nashville, Atlanta, places like that kind of up and down the, the, the East Coast. And so that's, that's where you'll see we'll do most of our deals. How has that market come to y'all recently, right? How much, um, how much of the growth of the Southeast has helped that geographical space kind of um, become more obtainable for y'all to invest in? You know, it's, it's funny, William. Uh, I would say one of the big reasons why when we went out to fundraise in the past, uh, everybody hated the geography. They just said, hey, there's very few unicorns that are going to happen in the Southeast. And then... You know, slowly over time, there were starting to be some unicorns. You're seeing more and more startups. You're seeing some of the West Coast firms coming into the Southeast. And then COVID 
really accelerated it. I mean, we all saw the number of Bay Area, New York VCs that moved to Miami and moved moved here. We saw uh, just just you know Zoom deals, lots of people doing Zoom deals. So it, that that one two year period really, I, I think. It, I don't think we get that as much towards the tail end of our fundraising. I think geography has become a little bit of a, a little bit of a non-issue, you know, as you're seeing some of the, the great VC, you know, partners living in Miami and living, living in the Southeast. So um, we'll see, you know, I, I, I'll be the first to say, I'm not sure we have, uh, you know, we don't have as many unicorns as, as San Francisco and the Bay Area, but but I think the the momentum for the Southeast and the Mid-Atlantic is, is, is on fire right now. Other than, or in addition to that, COVID kind of opening up the geographical component of it and having more people look for deals here just because it's easier for them to do it. What have been some of the other uh, challenges and opportunities that have happened as a result of COVID, right? What are some of the things that um, uh, that's really kind of hits you uh, from behind and giving you a nice little tailwind and then smacks you upside the face and knocks you down from time to time? <laughs> well, during it, uh, let's see, well, during it, certainly depending on what type of company you were doing, you know, you got a tailwind or a headwind, right? We had uh, a company, Spiffy, Spiffy is, uh, you know, a great entrepreneur here that is mobile car care. And, you know, during COVID, people weren't seeing each other. And that that business really got hit hard. It has now bounced back, but that, that got hit hard. But then our e-commerce companies, you know, they pushed forward, you know, five or 10 years of, of, of revenue. Again, everything went to e-commerce, right? For those two year periods or ed tech, we have an ed tech company in the DC area and, and it's all the same thing. So again, depending on what industry you were in, uh, you know, I think you can, you got a, you know, a major headwind or, or you got some nice tailwinds. I do think, again, back to my last comment, the Southeast overall, I think got a tailwind of an influx of great entrepreneurs. Again, no, no secret, we have a great quality of life here, right? We have Duke and UNC and NC State and Georgia Tech and you know Vanderbilt and all these great you know institutions here and the quality of life is cheaper and, and better. And so the influx of talent, the influx of people who have moved to Charlotte and the Triangle and places like that is is just been overwhelming. And, and again, I think it'll only you know bear out over the next five or 10 years with with more startups and more great people living here. Um, have you seen the triangle change over the course of the last couple of years, right? Um, I mean, obviously a ton of growth, and you've got Apple and some other folks coming in there. And um uh are you seeing it bring more mature founders to y'all as well from outside the state? Um, that, you know, maybe did something in, you know, San Francisco or Austin or New York and now are, um, now are, you know, coming to, to, to the Raleigh area, the Triangle area and found it there, or is it more, um, is it just more about those folks being able to reach further because, um, because COVID allowed them to reach further with e-commerce? <laughs> I think it's a little, you know, I think it's a, there's a couple of things there. I think, you know, one, uh, for sure, I, I, I can name more than a dozen Bay Area 
founders who had been successful in the Bay Area and have moved here and are, and are doing their company here or live, choosing to live here. It doesn't mean their whole team is here. So I do think absolutely an influx of great talent, Bay Area, New York, wherever. Um, I do think, again, some of that stuff just got pushed forward. Uh, you know, you used to always go uh, to the grocery store or go to the store. I, um, you know, I go go to Harris Teeter, and and now you can you can do a lot of that stuff online, and I think that really pushed that forward a lot. Um, the other thing, my my business partner Jason always likes to say, it takes three, you know, multi billion dollar companies in a market. And, and you start seeing the cycle start to happen. And I think the triangle has, you know, had Red Hat, which was the largest, uh, largest software IPO. And we have Pendo here, that's a unicorn. And then we have Epic Games, certainly a couple of others. But I think we're starting to see that, that flywheel of, you know, that happens and it mints 20 or 30 new millionaires. And then they leave and they go start their companies. And that kind of flywheel or cycle starts to happen and again takes decades for sure but 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 it's happening and we're seeing that we're seeing exactly that happen yeah um so um you mentioned jason um great guy um he's been down in charlotte a number of times as well right um how um how do y'all work together as a team what's it like as a um as a as a, as a two a two two partner um venture partner firm right that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been partners now for almost 20 years. And so, uh, you know, we get asked that a lot in diligence. And I would say, while we have some things that we each do, we, we each do it all. So yeah. it's not, we don't divvy it up as much. I would say he probably does a little bit more of the outward facing stuff. Maybe I do a little bit more of the inward facing stuff, but when it comes to diligence, it comes to deals. You know, we both have to agree on it. Um, everything is 50-50 for us. Um, so, you know, just 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 been a great partnership. And I'm amazed. And, and you see that over and over again. But you're seeing it now. As tough times happen, these venture firms that were created in the last four, five, six, seven, eight years, and everything was up and to the right. Well, now they're going through some tough times. And you're seeing, I, I, I've noticed, I think, six or seven firms that have kind of broken up. So, um you can't underestimate the power of, of a good partnership and we get, you know, we get along and we work together well. So you mentioned it a minute ago, what's, um, so what's your due diligence process like now and how's it evolved over gosh knows 20 years. So I'll tell you what, in the last, last two years, um, there were a lot of companies raising that just, you know, they, they did, they, they didn't expect you to, Hey, you really want to see the diligence room or sometimes they didn't have a diligence room. So um, for us, it's a pretty typical process. We represent some institutional LPs. Um, and so we have, we owe it to them to make sure there is nothing fraudulent going on. So we are going to double check. We are going, somebody is going to have their eyes on all the, you know, we don't believe, I don't believe in outsourcing that. I think I have to lay eyes on all that stuff. So um, I would say it's a normal due diligence process. Maybe the one thing we tend to do maybe a little bit more of is, is kind of the, the customer stuff. I mean, you know, as a, as a tech VC fund, you're rarely taking technical risk, right? I mean, the software engineers can probably create the software. 
you're really taking kind of adoption risk, market risk. Hey, will will the customers buy the software? And so I think we do a lot of stuff around that. It tends to be, um, this is good for the entrepreneurs, but good for us. We tend to try to bring some prospective customers to the company that we're in due diligence with. And it's a sales opportunity for them, flat out. We want them to sell them. and, and But for us, we can call the company afterwards and say, Hey, what'd you think? What'd you think of the price? Would you buy this? You know, and so I, I think we spend a little bit more time on kind of the customer stuff than than maybe some, but but other than that, fairly typical. Oh, that's pretty cool. Rather than taking existing clients that have been with them that they might have known from 10 years of previous engagement, and that's the reason they're a client rather than anything else. You're bringing a new client and you're looking at their sales process, you're looking at their um, you know, the closing rate. And then at the same time, you're getting feedback from a potential willing buyer. Um, hey, is this, is this a go or, or non? And, and what's keeping it from being a go too, right? Would you buy it a year from now, but you won't buy it today? Um, so that's a cool process. I like that. Hopefully it's a win-win, right? I mean, the, the, the companies hate it when you're bogging them down, but if I can show that, bring a customer to the table, they're, they're always like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. great. So, so, um, that's awesome. How, um, um, with the, with the folks moving from San Francisco, do you find them pushing back on a East coast style diligence process <laughs> or, or are they pretty accepting of the, of, of the things that y'all want to see? That's a good question, William. I, I would say, you know, I call it the West Coast offense and the East Coast offense a little bit. I, I think the West Coast, some of them probably laugh at some of the stuff we do. But I would also think, hopefully, that coming out of the last two or three years, I think there were, you know, I'm hearing more and more and more mistakes and fraud and stuff like that that has come out. And, you know, I, I don't I don't think we're wrong in doing that. Um, but I think there's, again, not all of them, but in the last two years, there have been some, and not just West Coast, but, yeah. but everybody that moved super, super fast. So um, I, I think we are now back to normal. I think it's very expected that you're going to do a normal due diligence period, that you're going to need to see everything and dot your I's and cross your T's. So. I think it's interesting that when I ask about due diligence, you talked about a win-win um, right. So it's a win for y'all because it's an opportunity for you to, you know, check them out in the sales process, but it's also a potential win for the, for the founder because they, they get a new customer. Um, and so it sounds like a fairly founder friendly process for them. Um, it's one of the things that you've talked about and obviously we're going to dive into what, what does founder friendly mean, but, um, or how y'all do founder friendly, but what is, um, what does the frown, founder friendly term mean to you? You know, that's, I, was, I was thinking about that, William, and, and there will be a lot of folks who believe the founder friendly term is more of a, hey, they're easy on terms or they always agree with the CEO. I think if you asked a lot of them, a lot of people, that that's what they would assume that term means. And I don't think we're, you know, I don't think we're, we're that, I mean, we, we, you know, we have terms and we, again, we represent institutional LPs and we're not always going to agree with the CEOs. I think we're going to have a, an opinion. I think we'll always have their back. Um, 
But when I do think about that term, I, you know, I, I've been on the record and I always say that 70% of our decision in making an investment is on the team and on the founders and on the, the so in that respect, you know, we I, I view us as very founder, founder friendly. I think we develop incredibly deep relationships with our CEOs. Many of them are good friends, right? And so, you know, we want to be that first call. We want to kind of break down some of the barriers. We're not the group that just shows up for a board meeting. I think we, you know, we, we want to serve them. We, they are one of our customers for sure, right? We serve our LPs, but without an entrepreneur, we go away. And so we, we view them very highly as one of our customers and we want to serve them and we want to have their back. So again, a little bit of a, I don't think we're easy on terms in, in that respect, that kind of founder friendly respect, but I think we we have their back. They're the most important part of any decision we make. Yeah. How does that, how does that really, I mean, it's got to be like any other relationship, right? At the beginning, um, you're standing arm's length apart, um, dancing at the middle school dance together and by the end you're getting married, right? Um, but how does that, how does that relationship with the founder evolve over time for y'all? Yeah, you know, interesting, William, a lot of the times we've known these folks, you know, for um, you know, we did the very first deal out of our fourth fund is a Bay Area company. Um, we had known one of the founders, uh, there's two co-founders from his time when he was in Durham and he was CMO of a company here. So we had a 10-year relationship with that founder. I think you'll as we describe a lot of our scenarios, you, you're going to hear a lot of that, like where we built up and we got to know them or we watched them in a prior company. So, um, uh, you know, once we make the investment, you're, you're right, William, as you're, as you're doing that dance around the term sheet, you know, that gets, that, you know, inherently gets a little uncomfortable, right? You're, we're pushing for what we want. They're pushing for what they want. Obviously, the perfect answer is where everybody kind of gets 85% of what they want and everybody feels a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit slighted, but not too much. And, and then, you know, you kind of got it right if both both sides feel that way. Um, but then I think after that, again, we have their back. We celebrate their wins. I love it when they call and say, hey, we got a, you know, we got a big win and, you know, we landed this, or if I can help make an introduction to somebody and help them land it or help them guide them to the right, you know, outcome. Um, and then we console them when, when when they're going through a tough time. Hey, we're we're struggling here and we, we need to raise a new round or, hey, we lost a big customer or we lost a VP of sales. And so I think we try to roll up our sleeves and, you know, just get after it. And again, you know, be the hardest workers on their team, really, really work for them. So um, I, I hope they, you know, again, I hope they respect us and I hope they like us being on their side. Yeah. <clears throat> um, COVID threw a lot of founders for a loop, right? Um, especially those first 30 days. And been, most of our conversations in the podcast over the course of the last couple of years have been more around um, founders than it has been around VCs um, and how founders reacted, right? Um, so was it March, Friday, March 13th, um, was, mm -hmm. you know, the day, so to speak. Um, how did y'all handle things over the, you know, the, um, the following couple of weeks in your relationships with your founders? What did y'all do, um, to help, um, and try to open up those channels of communications with founders that had to be, you know, really just shell shocked at that point in time? Yeah. 
interesting what happened is you know you fast forward 90 days later and everything else you know kind of resumed you know back to normal and, and again most of the companies yeah. unless you were like spiffy you got you know hit pretty hard or if you're a restaurant or a lot of small businesses really did get hit hard um our action at that point was immediately reaching out to every single one of them um hey cash is king during these times how are we let's shore up our runway if we need to raise something, let's raise it immediately. Um, let's or shed any headcount that we don't need. Let's 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 you know tighten up the ship for sure. Um, and then helping them, you know, I think we did a lot of help making sure they got for the companies that needed the um, the Fed stimulus money. So we you know we certainly played a, a part in matching them up and making sure each one that wanted that money got it. Um, and then again, just being a sounding board because you know it seemed like the world was about to end at that point. And um, I'm trying to think again. I'll, I'll pick on Spiffy again. Spiffy was, was tough. I I don't remember the exact number, William, but I think the revenue got hit by about eighty percent. I mean, remember at that time you 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 know you didn't leave your house, right? You, last thing you're thinking about is getting your car washed or oil changed or something like that. That's something that you can push off. It's not a need. It's a, you know, a little bit more of a, a nice to have. And so, yeah. um, you know, they, they, they brainstorming with the, with Scott Wingo, the founder and CEO of Spiffy on, Hey, what are the, what are the lines of business can we get into? And again, I, we don't take any credit for it, but Scott immediately came up with a way to disinfect your car. I mean, wow. And, and just, you know, that really, really took off for him and then a bunch of other lines of business, but helping them again, think through what this is going to do. Spoonflower is another one of our companies, an e-commerce company during that time. I mean, they just had an incredible tailwind, right? Again, if you're, you, you didn't go to Joanne's Fabrics or places like that during COVID, you went to Spoonflower and their business just ballooned. So again, some you could, you know, we had to help them through dealing with all that demand, those are good problems to have. Um, and some we had to figure out, Hey, new lines of business or ways to kind of stay alive. Yeah. Which is, um, I mean, part of our conversation today, as you and I've talked about is, um, how do y'all help founders, you know, both professionally as well as personally. Um, and that was, you know, for somebody like Spiffy or for, you know, earlier stage companies, seed round companies for the first you know, 30 or 60 days, they've got two thoughts in their mind, right? The first thought is, oh crap, what am I going to do with my company? Um, and oh crap, if my company goes under, what the heck am I going to do in the midst of all of this, right? So um, was there panic on the personal side at that point in time? Or did y'all have to have any of those personal finance? You know, how are you doing personally? I mean, shoot, I know you reached out to me, I think twice over the pandemic um, to check on me. So um, and that's how I was doing. So I can't imagine you had similar types of conversations with, with founders. Were there folks that were thinking that side as well? Um, or was just so much of it, let's keep the business alive because if we keep the business alive, then we know we're going to be helping the founder, you know, continue to be alive, um, so to speak as well. Yeah. Another good question, William. Um, I think probably the latter again, let's, let's, what do we need to do to keep this alive? You know, knock on wood. I don't think we had any company that was 
you know, running out of cash in 60 or 90 days, which is, which is again, probably pure luck that we happen to be in that spot for the most part. Um, so it was really more about, hey, how do we tighten up the ship? How do we, you know, maybe cut some people or, or get lean or whatever we need to do to kind of survive through this? Um, but I do think, you know, you, you bring up a, an issue, like the personal side of it. Um, again, I, I, I think as a, as I've now done this for eight, you know, almost 20 years, the psychologist of, of a VC, like, I mean, I, I care about these people deeply. Like, I want to know what's going on with their families and how their kids are doing in soccer. And I mean, all that stuff is super, super important to me. And it all leads to how well they're performing. So I think um, just inherently, we, we called and checked up on them personally. Some were going, you know, some had issues and some, you know, maybe couldn't, you know, had to think about COVID a lot more than some and really wear masks and really stay. And so, you know, those we would, we would check up on even more, but um, yeah, they're family, right? I mean, they're all, they're all family to us. And so I think it's, uh, I don't know, again, I just, uh, for better or for worse, I think that's, 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 that's what we do. And I think that's how we think about our portfolio companies is as a family. So, so reaching out to them and, and, and again, more personally, but also the company, I think was what we did. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, um, it's kind of bad to say a lot of this, but they're almost like a client, right? So, I mean, how, right. how do you serve them in the process? Right. So totally. Totally. Um, you want them ultimately to give you financial returns in the process, but how do you serve them? And as a client, that's certainly something that you, you take into consideration and, and, and deal with along the way and help with along totally. the way. I shouldn't say deal, deal makes it sound like it's a burden <laughs> rather than anything else. Right. So, um, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the, in the past, um, it's kind of what led to this, um, part of the podcast. I had a client years ago up in DC and, um, he was the president of a company. It was an old ed, ed tech company that, um, had been around for decades and he ended up being the president and bought out a couple of times by, um, by a couple of different private equity funds along the way. And so he just kind of continued to roll his equity through the process. Um, and they did some recapitalizations and paid him out. And he did this. And we did some advanced estate planning and whatnot with them. <clears throat> and it's interesting, as we've had some conversations with founders around this area, um, and we talk about some of the things that we did with that client, um, we get pushback from founders and they say, hey, you know, that sounds like a really good idea, but... I don't know if I really want to bring it up with our VC because I, I don't know how they'll respond. They might not like it and I don't want to hurt their feelings or ask something that they're not supportive of or stuff like that. So how do you, um, the financials, the business financials and how they affect the personal financials of the founders, um, how does that interplay for y'all? Yeah, I, I, I thought a lot about this one. I think, um, at the earliest stages of a company, the, the formation parts, some of the stuff we do there, I think the founders are probably more forthcoming coming, and maybe I'm more forthcoming. Hey, are you, you know, 83B and C Corp and yada, yada, all, all the different things that we'll talk about here. Um, I think that becomes very natural stuff. And I think that's a good two way. About midway through or towards the end of a company, again, I'm I'm I don't I don't have a good reason why, but a lot of the entrepreneurs don't 
sometimes they'll ask us for hey who's a good advisor you know and but but that's that's about it it's, it's and again I, i'm I, I don't know enough about the advising business, so that's probably yeah. the right question for them to be asking me. Is a, you know, referring them to somebody like you, William? Um, but there's a lot of things they, you know, they need to be doing, especially if the business is going well. And you know, I don't want them doing it. They'd be better off served having somebody else thinking about this who's seen it a bunch of times before. Um, and I'm amazed. Uh, again, I I can name half a dozen. Of our entrepreneurs that have had pretty large exits and again surprisingly very few tax efficient things have been set up like i'm just again probably they look at it as hey these are champagne problems i never expected it but uh, but you know nevertheless they could have saved themselves a lot of time a lot of energy a lot of taxes a lot of, a lot of other things and so uh, i am always amazed that as we th as I thought about this, William, I, th I, I th you know clearly I need to get more proactive about pushing them, and and it'll be interesting to see if they push back on that or they don't want to talk to me about that. I don't I don't under think there's any reason why they shouldn't. I'm not I'm not asking them to do anything. I'm just giving them advice. But again, it probably tends to be hey, make sure you seek an advisor like yeah. like William. That's interesting, you know. Uh that the 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 starting off conversations happen so easily right like mm -hmm. hey should i do an llc or c corp right what about this qualified small business stock versus pass through losses how should i handle that um but as it gets i guess as anything else in life right as it gets more complicated we all uh, we all fear like hey i should know the answer so i can't ask mm -hmm. because um so it's an it's an interesting um dilemma that that kind of poses over time mm -hmm. but i mean so um on that so is it more on some of those early stage stuff are y'all pushing it david so the llcc court qualifies small business stock or you know the um the revesting of shares for founders um are those natural conversations that hey look we're gonna do this this is what it means um this is you know how we've seen folks handled in the past and both by the way you should go talk to xyz founder because we think he did a really good job with it and he can put you in touch with whoever used or something like that um or is it them really kind of being very open and vulnerable and saying hey i, I don't know i don't know what the hell you just said can you can you help me out <laughs> a little bit of both i would yeah a little bit of both i would say the more experienced entrepreneurs william you know they they they, they know what the revesting of shares and you know hopefully a good counsel's advising you to do the 83b and go ahead and and, and pay the taxes up front on on your, your your granted shares uh the llc versus the c corp that, that's usually a good conversation and my answer is always stay in llc as long as you want because you personally get to capture those losses why give those up and then we can switch it to a c corp the day we invest and so that, that tends to be you know i think people get wrapped around the axle on that and it's you know that, gosh what if they stay what if they can capture two or three years of of, of losses like that's a that's a no-brainer i would hate for them not to do that and be taxed twice as a c corp um, early on before they raise money the qualified small business stock i mean we, we, we definitely push that like there's no reason not to have that in your docs and get set up i mean it may not doesn't always play out because of the rules of that but um you know you you should 
so, so yeah, I think I think it's a good give and take, and we're certainly kind of going through our checklist and 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 pushing for some of those at the startup phase for sure. And then they're they're a lot more accepting of that point in time. They understand, hey, that's a good point, David, or David, I don't understand that point. Can you help me out a little bit? Because totally. they're you're building something when you're first building it, you're a lot more receptive to concepts and ideas and whatnot. This might puts in front of you. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, yeah. And you know, they may go bounce it off their council or bounce it off somebody like you, William, to make sure they're doing the right thing for them personally. But I think usually those are pretty straightforward and, you know, again, not that there's a right or wrong answer, but they're, you know, more than not, it's a, it's a pretty good way to, to manage the setup of the company and the early days of the company. How fair is it for them to be worried about dilution from future fundraising rounds and how easy of an ask is, is it for them to come to y'all and say, hey, David, we started off with X percent and we just got diluted here and we're going to get, what does this mean for me? What can I expect? I mean, is that, is that a fair question for them to come to y'all and say, what, what hey, wait a second, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, you know what? It, uh, the other side of that, William, is it shows me how much they care about the company. Like the company means a lot. I, like I'm always impressed with the founders that don't want the dilution a little bit because they realize, hey, I've got a lot of value in this thing. Now, they're, 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 there's a balance there too, right? I mean, there's we try to give them the smaller piece of the bigger pie kind of talk, um, and that's a lot of back and forth. That's 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 you know that that is there's no right answer to that. Um, those are, those are pretty good discussions to have. And again, uh, I'm amazed at, this is a general statement, but I would say the lesser experienced entrepreneurs probably worry about that more. The Scott Wingo, you know, this is his fourth company. He's like, Hey, listen, let's say, hey, I, I get it. This, this seems fair. Let's, let's, let's get back to building the company. Yeah, and so uh, again, I'm not. That's easy for an investor to say, "Hey, don't worry about dilution." I'm, I'm not saying that at all, but, but um, I, I think it's a good, good give and take. It, it impresses me when they don't want the dilution, but if they do need capital to accelerate growth, then, and then you know, you need to give up some. I think we do have a talk with them, William, pretty early on. To, I try to walk them through all of our companies, and hey, most of the founders end up owning you know, under 20% or so, 225% at the end. And so, you know, usually that's a pretty big gulp from some of them that, you know, you went from owning a hundred to you, you created an option pool and you raised some money and God, you're already down to 45 or something like that. It's probably, you know, holy cow, I'm going to get cut in half again. So we do talk through some of that. Yeah. What about the successes along the way? Right. I mean, gosh knows raising a B or C round, um, that's a, it's a big thing for those folks to go out and do. I mean, um, do you, do you encourage them or do they ask, Hey, is it okay for us to take a little and, um, um, and relax for, for, um, for six days or, um, can we take the team out to go, you know, celebrate or, you know, how do y'all, how do y'all, I mean, look, um, life's about experiences, right. And the end goal is to create the, the, the exit, so to speak, whatever that exit might end up being, um, but you got to celebrate the little victories along the way too. Right. So how do y'all, totally. how does that, how does that interaction or, or do y'all force them, right? Do you, you take them out and celebrate with them on your own? How does that, <laughs> how does that whole, um, uh, mix work together for y'all? Uh, um, 
Uh, yes, I, I'm a huge believer in celebrating all the little stuff. For, for the entrepreneurs, I always say it is a very, there's a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows. For me, I have a portfolio company, so mine is a little bit muted, right? I get some, you know, some high highs and you know, not as quite a low lows, but um, for the entrepreneur, they, need, they absolutely need to celebrate the, every little win. Now, I am on the record not a big fan of publicly the win is building a great company and selling it. Getting a financing, again, it's a great thing, but it's some people, some entrepreneurs tend to celebrate that too much. And again, I think we're seeing that play out right now. There are hundreds and hundreds of companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Kudos to you. Now what, right? They got a valuation that's worth 2 billion. They're doing 10 or 15 million in revenue. And you know, there's going to be a lot of people in a lot of trouble. So um, I hope that makes sense when I said that. I, I, again, it, we it, celebrate it, but try not to publicly publicly pound your chest because it, we've just raised a financing. We didn't build a great company and sell it very successfully. Um, so step out of founder friendly for a second. Can you weed some of those folks out? Is that part of the due diligence? Can you, can you tell those folks that are going to bang their chest for six weeks after they've raised a, a financing round? Can you weed those out in the due diligence? Do you end up with a um, a way to kind of screen that, screen that out so you don't have to handle it on the back end? Um, I think you probably know a little bit of that going yeah. in, William. Um, and, and we've backed, you know, it, there's a lot of personalities, right? It takes all kinds to, oh, yeah. be, to, to take the risk of putting your life savings into something and, and going with it. So again, I, I, I feel like all of our entrepreneurs do things a little bit differently. We don't have a playbook that we sculpt them to go down. I think it, that's my input to them is, hey, I, let's, let's celebrate this internally and let's slap high fives. Awesome job. You know, do we need to pound our chest for, for two weeks and do a roadshow that we raised the Series B? No, pr- probably not. Um, are there things that happen to the founders that y'all you probably know a better way to say it. You roll your eyes at. I remember early on in 2015 or 2016, when I first started going to the Charlotte angel fund meetings and I told somebody about it and, you know, going to the meetings and seeing the founders pitch and all of those different things. And, um, like, Oh, well those, those guys, um, you know, um, they need a buy sell agreement or they need a key man life insurance policy. Are there things where you automatically say, whoa, whoa, calm down. You don't need that. This is what we're doing. <laughs> you know, um, are there things like that where y'all are just like, whoa, wait five years and then we'll take care of that later on down the road. Um, uh, or is it, or is it just what I just said that the, the key man <laughs> life insurance policies we try to stay away from? We, uh, no, we require some of the key man stuff. I mean, there's some of that stuff that I think is 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 important. I, I would say maybe to answer your question, William, I think some of them at the earliest stages, simple and less is more, right? I mean, it's you don't need a seven-person board when you're just getting the, you know, it, like just keep things simple. Maybe, maybe you don't even want a board, right? Maybe it's just, we've had companies where we decided, 
hey, let's don't do a formal board. Let's do a check-in every 30 days, but you just need to go. You need to build a product. You need to you know keep going. And so um, I would say them tr just trying to keep them to keep things simple is probably where, where I push on some of that stuff. But some of the usual, you know, again, uh, key man insurance and and some of that stuff, it, we, we, you know, we we do require that. Yeah. What about um, are the conversations that founders bring to you in the past or um, that don't belong in the relationship? I mean, it, it, everything's got boundaries, right? Um, if they um, you know, if they're a drug dealer on the side, they probably shouldn't bring that into the room and say, Hey, look, I, um, I sold a kilo or whatever, whatever it was the other day. Um, but you know, are there other conversations around the, um, around the business or around personal stuff that you know, say, Hey, wait a second. That's, that's, that's quote unquote off limits. Or, um, does it just mean that by nature you deal with some conversations that you wouldn't expect to deal with otherwise? I think probably the latter. I think, you know, we, we, again, I want to be there. I want to be supportive of them. Here's, here's uh, maybe one angle that I've gotten a couple of times, William, I've, I've been asked by some of our CEOs not to be a board member, but to be a board observer when, when there was a chance to, to take a board seat and their, their response is, Hey, you're like an advisor to me. I can come to you with some issues that I maybe can't come to the board with, right? The board, the board's job is to hire and fire the CEO. And if they come to me, and I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I think it's a little bit of a cop out, but I, but I've heard that a couple of times before. Hey, can you, you know, would you rather be a, can you be a board observer and not a board member? I still don't think it, it, you know, it doesn't, I still have a fiduciary responsibility. If I hear yeah. something bad about the business, like I'm going to still, and I always tell them that, Hey, stop. Yeah. I, I, you know, I am going, I have a responsibility to tell the board if it's something, something bad. And usually it's something more brainstormy or, Hey, I'm looking out or, Hey, I'm thinking about this. And it's, it, it, so I don't think it, I don't think in 20 years, William, I've ever heard, I mean, I've probably heard some weird stuff that, uh, personally, but nothing that's, again, nothing that's caused us to, you know, fire a CEO or me to, I don't know, maybe I'm not surprised too easily. <laughs> so um, I told you earlier on in the conversations that we'd, we'd come up to about the 45 minute mark and it'd come a lot faster than either one of us kind of expected us to. And I'd give you a little bit of a heads up, but we're, we're bumping up against this. We're kind of um, coming up on our time here. Um, one of the questions that I've been pondering is the exit. Um, how do y'all approach the exit conversation with the founder? Um, and how do you prepare them for it? Cause I mean, selling the business is you know, is, um, is stressful and the founder is stressful and aspects of the team. Um, it, I would imagine it takes a fair amount of y'all's time as well to help them. Um, so how does that exit conversation evolve, um, all the way up until, you know, uh, signing the final document, so to speak? 
Yeah, again, William, I, I think this is where I probably have room for improvement because I think it's um, by the time you're hiring a banker or, or you know, the exit is starting to show itself, you're going to be, you're trying to run a business and you're starting to do that. You have time for barely anything else. I mean, it's you know, documents with the legal, it's back and forth with the banker, it's traveling to get, it's, it's, I, I think in hindsight, right, you know, a year before that, again, if I had a crystal ball, you don't always have that crystal ball, but a year before that would be the perfect time to say, hey, do you have a good outside advisor that is helping you think about some of the things that you know might happen as we've built a nice business and we're clearly gonna you know gonna sell it for a decent amount um you know are, are you thinking about the grant or retained annuity trusts are you you know have you we have the qualified small business is that going to work here um, all those different things and again it, that, that's not me guiding them because i don't know their person but it's making sure they have somebody that they can lean on and trust. And you know, again, somebody like you, William, that can guide them through that. I th you tell me, I think if we're doing it right as we've you know, decided to sell the business or hire a bank, it's, it's probably too late then as well, right? So it's really, and again, maybe I, I need to get more proactive that yearish before or two years before or something like that is probably the time they need to be laying the groundwork there because by the time we've decided to, to exit the business it's 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 assholes and elbows just trying to get you know trying to get the process done full steam ahead everybody just yeah. head down trying to make sure you're <clears throat> running to the exit um or running for the exit so to speak as fast as you can right that's right that's um so um no i mean it's um you know it's it's interesting that um so much thought is put into from the very beginning what the exit looks like um and then as the exit comes it's like oh, oh shoot here's the exit what am Seriously. i supposed to do right yeah um because but i mean but at the, at the same time david it makes a ton of sense right because you know you've talked about it this whole time their job is to is to grow and scale the business so that's where their whole focus and attention on um and yeah, then but all of a sudden somebody as a trusted advisor, you know, yeah. again, you know, having somebody else thinking about that for you again, it just, you know, I, I think that's, that goes a long way. Yeah. So, um, so we'll, um, we'll end on the same question. How's this? Um, I wasn't prepared to do this. So I'm gonna catch you off guard, but, um, and if it's a bad question, we'll start all over again. Um, <laughs> we got another 50 minutes. We'll go all that all over again. <laughs> um, so on the back end of that, what does founder friendly mean now? Um, Right. So what's uh, what's the what's the view of, of found, founder friendly going forward? I think founder friendly for Bull City Venture Partners is um, having our entrepreneurs back, uh, being their support system, serving them however we can. And again, I think the one thing this this podcast has, has helped me learn is I think I do an OK job at thinking about them personally, but making sure they have their life in order a little bit. Again, more from a financial perspective is something I think I'll, I, I will be adding that to my checklist again at some point. So um, that's, uh, that is what founder friendly will continue to mean for us. Yeah. I mean, um, 
I don't know. It's uh, so cool to hear you talk about it like that. Cause <clears throat> I mean, in essence, you're, you're kind of exposing your, um, I shouldn't say exposing um, you're kind of showing a vulnerability there, right? Like there's, you know, some things that maybe we can continue to do to improve ourselves as a firm. Um, and as we talked about a few minutes ago, that's kind of where it, um, the entrepreneur is with y'all, right? They're, they're being vulnerable in um, tough times and difficult times and, and things like that. And that's how you grow and scale a successful enterprise. So um, I don't know, y'all, um, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think, you know, having known you for the last five or six years now, um, y'all do such a great job with your entrepreneurs that the fact that you believe there's any room for improvement is is surprising to me. So um, I think y'all have done a great job. You've got a great name for yourselves up there in that area, as well as down here in Charlotte. So um, it's been a, an awesome time having you on the podcast and talking about how, you know, um, how founders can bring some of this stuff up with their, you know, what they can, what they can't, um, when they should, when they shouldn't. Um, and understanding, I think what you just kind of summarized is, you know, look, as long as we're, I mean, we'll, we'll stay with the kilo conversation. As long as you're not bringing kilos to the board meeting, um, and asking about that conversation, most conversations with your, with your VCs are, are probably okay to have, even if they relate to, Hey, what about me in the process? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that's a good takeaway. I hope all the entrepreneurs will not, not be worried about having that. I think that, you know, they should, for the most, they should trust their investors. I, I hope, or, you know, certainly that, that's the way we think about it. Yeah. So, um, well, cool. Once again, man, I'm super excited um, that y'all closed that um, that last round at, um, up over the 50 number. I think that's a, that's a fantastic number to be up over. Um, Well-deserved. Um, y'all put in the you know the groundwork over the years as well so um, keep up the good work and thanks for so much for being on the podcast and being such a great um, member of the community here in the Carolinas thank you William thanks for all your support of us I really appreciate it enjoy this thanks of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and the opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.